Congregation Beth Israel presents a meeting place for the sages. Thank you, Bob, to begin with right away for sponsoring this entire series. We are, we are um, doing this important series, which really was, was Bob's idea about the concept of time and how we measure time and how we deal with time. And when Bob brought up that idea, I immediately thought of um, David Svi Kalman, who I heard and had the opportunity of hearing uh, speak and lecture at the Hartman Institute at their Rabbinic um, Institute in Israel. And David Svi Kalman works for the Hartman Institute, which is really a, a Jewish think tank, actually started out of, uh, by, by a, a rabbi who had made Aliyah from Montreal. So it's uh, born out of Canada, really. And David's, talking about born out of Canada, David Svikalman was born in Canada as well. So we know that the um, we know that the best Jews are born in Canada, even if they decide to to live in the in the state that has produced some of the best rabbis. Um, but we um, we want to. So when I when I heard David Svikalman speak, I I have to admit I I absolutely loved the way he presented, and I loved his topic. And he has a PhD in and I believe Jewish and Islamic uh, thought of, of Jewish and Islamic law of, on technology and did his dissertation on, on time. And so that's of course, and, and the technology of time at the University of Pennsylvania. And so that's immediately what made me think that he would be a wonderful person to kick off this three-part series. So I'm gonna turn this over to you and you can correct whatever I messed up in terms of your bio. Thank you for the kind introduction and thank you all for being here. Um, it's really a pleasure to be learning with you and I, it's especially a pleasure to learn with Canadian audiences. I, I was born and raised in Toronto and I miss Canada very much, <laughs> I think especially the last few years. Um, so I'm really excited to be learning with you tonight. Um, we're talking about time, um, but I think more broadly we're talking about technology. And one of the things that is worth reflecting on in terms of the way technology enters our lives is that there is this effect that we are very, very aware of the technologies that have changed within our lifetimes. And maybe the lifetimes of the people who are a little bit older than us, maybe the lifetimes of our parents and grandparents. But once it gets beyond that, our memories kind of get kind of fuzzy. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. One of them is that the history of technology is not normally taught in schools. It's not taken seriously as a subject worthy of study. But beyond that, one of the things that technologies do is they often erase their predecessors, right? Like you don't need the old thing, the new thing is just as good, the new thing is better. And so you have the situation where people very, very quickly forget the ways that things used to be because of old technologies. And there's really no technology where this is more true than technology around timekeeping, which is a set of technologies that have developed consistently, you know, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly for basically 3,000 years. Um, now, there's something else which is around 3,000 years old, which you may be thinking of. Um, and Judaism has a relationship with technology and a relationship with timekeeping that's very old and very complicated, and I think um, has been pretty well understudied. So what I wanna do is kind of give you a window into one way in which you can see Judaism responding, reacting to different ways that people are thinking about keeping track of time as the technology develops, as it improves, 
And you can see that these technologies have more than just a kind of you know, nominal effect on, on, on Judaism, uh, because the way that we think about time uh, has an impact on the way we plan out our own lives, right? What, what it means to, be pl to plan out a day or a week or a month, um, what it means to feel busy or not busy, uh, what it means to, you know, to know exactly how long I'm supposed to speak for, for example, right? All these things are contingent in some way on time. Um, so let's get into it. Timekeeping's been around for a long time. Um, and just to kind of set a baseline for this, uh, timekeeping in the ancient world, timekeeping, you know, 1000 uh, BCE, basically up until around the year zero, um, is pretty rudimentary. You may have heard of some of the kinds of uh, technology that people used to keep track of time before. Um, you might have heard of sundials, which allow you to keep track of time by watching the way that a shadow crosses um, you know, some predetermined set of markers, or you may have heard of water clocks. Water clocks you know, drip out water at a constant rate, and so you can kind of look at the level of the water and figure out based on that how much time has elapsed. Both those things have been around for a long time, as has the idea that the day and the night should each have 12 hours in it, which we still basically have today, the 24-hour day, um, and the idea that you should divide, uh, you know, each hour into 60 minutes or so. Those things have been around for a long time. But once it gets beyond that, things get a little more complicated because it turns out that there is long been a pretty sharp divide between the way that it's possible to keep track of time and the ways that people actually keep track of time in practice. And like, if, if you think about, for example, the way that you might use the word nanosecond today, right? There's a way that, you know, a, a person who is not a physicist uses the word nanosecond, which just means like a really small amount of time. And there's a way that a physicist uses the word nanosecond, which is like a very precise, they mean something very exact, um, you know, something that can fit into a mathematical equation. Something similar is going on with much larger units of time in the ancient world, because the technologies they have to keep track of time are not that great, even under the best of circumstances. Sundial, for example, you know, they're great during the day, they're great in places that have lots of sun, but once you get to places that, you know, um, have you know long winter months where there's not a lot of sunshine or places that are cloudy on a regular basis you can't really rely on sundials anymore water clocks also have their problems right water is very heavy which means that if you want to keep track of a lot of time with a water clock you have to have a really serious like very large construction some of the largest water clocks are like basically monuments they're huge towers um and also water freezes right so it's very it's all nice and it's all well and good to have a water clock around but you know, if it gets cold overnight and you just kind of, you're no longer tracking time um, the way you thought you were. Uh, and of course, you know, as the, as the water goes down, the rate at which the water leaves, uh, leaves the container changes as well. So these are not great tools. And because they're not great tools, the truth of the matter is that for a long time, even though they were available, most people didn't use them. They used in like a few specific contexts. Maybe the army uses them. They're used by astronomers. They're certainly used for ornamental purposes because even if you don't actually use a sundial, if you put a sundial in, you know, in your garden and everyone knows how smart you are and how interested in science you are. So, you know, you have that, great. Um, they're also used in like, you know, legal systems. The Romans use water clocks to say how long lawyers are allowed to argue their cases. So, you'll, you know, you get to argue for like three water clocks worth of time. You get to argue for two water clocks worth of time, things like that. Um, but beyond that, most people, they're aware of these things, but they're not using them. 
And when you understand that, when you understand that there's basically no technologies that everyone is using to keep track of time, there are all these specialized tools, it makes sense that the Bible, the, if you look through the entire Hebrew Bible, you will find the word hours, the word sha'ah, hour, exactly three times. And the three times that you find it are in literally the very, very, very latest part of the Bible, the part that, you know, uh, part in Sefer Daniel, Daniel, which comes at the very, very end. And even in those instances, when it says hour, it doesn't actually mean like 60 minutes. It means something like a short period of time. So basically, the entire Hebrew Bible is not interested in timekeeping in any kind of significant way whatsoever. Now, of course, it's interested in you know, weeks and months. Bible loves that stuff. There's all kinds of holidays that are associated with those things. But if you think about what it means to keep track of time within the span of a day, there's not a lot of discussion about that whatsoever. There's one exception to this, but the exception is something that kind of proves the rule. Here's the exception. There's a passage in Isaiah, which, and you'll read this and you'll be like, what exactly is going on here? Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, go, uh, go and tell Ezekiel. So Isaiah is the prophet. Um, uh, Hezekiah, Ezekiel is the, is the king. Thus says the Lord, the God of your father, David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I hereby add 15 years to your life. Great. I will also rescue you and this city from the hands of the kings of Assyria. I will protect the city. And now here's the important part. This is the sign for you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. I'm going to make the shadow on the steps, which has descended on the dial of Ahaz, because of the sun, recede 10 steps. And the sun's shadow receded 10 steps, the same steps that it had descended. So what exactly is this thing like a dial of Ahaz, something about shadows, something about 10 steps? Most scholars think that this is referring to some kind of sundial. But it's notable that the one time the Hebrew Bible is interested in talking about sundials, it is literally owned by a king, meaning it's not owned by a regular person. It's something that they happen to have in their palace because you know, they're, they're different, they're exceptional. Um, it gives you a sense of the ways that there really is a, um, a, a gap here between the potential for the technologies to be used and the ways that they're actually used. And then things basically go on like this, certainly throughout the Bible, and then even in some, uh, some of the books that come after the Bible, really the thing, this only starts to change once you have Jews encountering Greeks. We just finished Hanukkah. We talk all about kinds of Greek and Jewish encounters around Hanukkah. This is one of those encounters. This is an encounter where one of the things that Greeks bring into Jewish culture is um, more sophisticated timekeeping. They give to the Jews the notion of a 12-hour day, something that the Jews do not have previously in a 12-hour night. Um, and they have a concept which becomes really important in Jewish law, something called a seasonal hour. So within Jewish law, there's a way of thinking about hours that's, that's pretty different from the way that hours are thought about, you know, when we keep track of time today. So there's still 24 hours in a day and night, but instead of saying that every hour is the same length, every hour is 60 minutes, you say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to say the day is always 12 hours, the night is always 12 hours, and an hour is just, you know, one twelfth of a day or a night. What that means is that an hour gets much longer during the daytime in the summer and gets much shorter you know, in the, um, in the summer, I'm sorry, it gets much shorter in the winter, right? It, it changes depending on exactly where you are in the year. And that can, as you can probably tell, get a little bit confusing. Um, but that is the way that they're keep, keeping track of time. That's something that they're inheriting directly from the Greeks. Um, 
even though they're inheriting this, the Greeks themselves are kind of ambivalent about it. And uh, just to give you a sense of this, there was a time when the Greeks also did not keep track of time this way. There was a time when the Greeks are not thinking in terms of hours, in terms of terms of sundials at all. And there is this amazing moment in a play, um, just at the moment when the kind of the Greeks are adapt uh, are adopting this hour system for the first place, where they say, I, I hate this because what it means is that I don't get to eat dinner when I want to. May the gods destroy that man who first discovered hours and who first set up a sundial here, who cut up my day piecemeal, wretched me. For when I was a boy, my only sundial was my stomach, by far the best and truest of all the fox. When it advised you, you ate, unless there is no food. Now, even when there is food, it isn't eaten. Oops, I'm sorry. I just lost enough. It isn't eaten unless the sun allows it. Indeed, now the sun, now the town is so filled with sundials that the majority of its people crawl about all shoveled up with hunger. And you, you know, you get that sense, like there is that long tension between the way that you're supposed to keep track of time, you know, the time, you know, it's, you're supposed to do things at certain times of the day, and the way that, you know, your body, your community has its own rhythms that don't always match up with those things. That tension never really goes away. That tension is probably still with us today. Um, and they are noting it already, and they're noting it with regard to, to, to meals, but, but it's always around. Um, and because it's always around, when the Jews ad uh, adopt and adapt to the Greek timekeeping system, they don't take it on wholeheartedly. They're interested in it a little bit, but they also recognize not everyone's gonna use it. And so you start seeing in the rabbi's material, when the rabbis who are, are kind of inheritors of Greek and Roman ideas, when they start thinking about hours, they're kind of ambivalent about it. I'll give you a good example of this. What time is the earliest time that you can say Shema in the morning? This is one of the first uh, Mishnayot, in, in, in the rabbinic literature. And it does not say you can start saying Shema, you know, at this hour. It gives a much simpler and much more universal way of thinking about it. It says, from when can a person say Shema in the morning? From when it is possible to distinguish between sky blue and white. You know, when it's light enough that you can tell the difference between two colors that are pretty different. Rabbi Eliezer gives a slightly different idea. He says it's between sky blue and green. But either way, the idea is, how do you know when it's morning? It's morning when it's light enough to do stuff. That's what morning is. It's not about a clock of any of any sort. And the end time for saying Shema is sunrise. Rabbi Yoshua says, no, it's until the third hour of the day, since it is the habit of the children of kings to get up in the third hour. Now imagine that for Rabbi Yoshua, the latest you can imagine anybody ever waking up is the third hour of the day. That means three hours after dawn, which you know these days is probably around you know eight or nine o'clock. If you have teenagers and you have, you know, people in your life, you probably know people who wake up a little bit later than that, um, at least sometimes. But what's interesting here is exactly how they're using the word hour there. They're talking about the third hour, and it's not a coincidence they're talking about the third hour and not the first and the second. They're talking about the third hour because the third hour is exactly one quarter into the day. It's the middle of the morning. That's a pretty easy thing to figure out. If you're just looking at the sky, if you're looking at the sun's position in the sky, you can basically say like, okay, I know it's early morning or late morning. I know it's early afternoon or late afternoon. So the rabbis are, can, can talk about dividing the day into quarters, and they frequently do. They talk about dividing the day into quarters, but they're not willing to do more than that. They're, allow, they're, they're expecting people to have some basic sense of how to keep track of time, but not much beyond that. You see this even more clearly 
at the one day in the Jewish calendar when keeping track of time is the absolute most important thing because you are, you know, you're literally committing a sin if you do something in the wrong minute. And that is the day before Pesach, not actually Pesach, but the day before Pesach. Because the day before Pesach, there is, according to the rabbis, a rule in which you can eat chametz, you can eat leavened bread until a certain hour of the morning. And if you eat it beyond that, you sin. <laughs> so people care a lot about exactly what that hour is. So they spell it out here. They say, Rabbi Yehuda says, Passover Eve, you may eat, you may eat bread until the fourth hour. Its status is suspended in the fifth hour. It's burned at the beginning of the sixth hour. So, you know, different points in the late morning. But again, most people can't tell the distinction between, you know, fourth hour, fifth hour, sixth hour. It's a little bit too tough for them. And so they develop a system to deal with this. We're imagining this is a, a Passover at the times of the temple when everyone is gathering in Jerusalem all together to celebrate Passover together. And so how do they expect people to keep track of time? The people in the temple themselves actually develop a system to help people know when it's okay to eat chametz and when it's not. Rabbi Huda said, two loaves of bread were placed on the temple colonnade. As long as they were there, everyone was allowed to eat. When one was taken away, its status was suspended, and then neither ate nor burned their bread. When they were both removed, the nation began to burn their bread. This system is basically the rabbinic version of a stoplight, right? <laughs> Two loaves of bread is like green, one loaf of bread is yellow, and then no loaves of bread is red, right? It's a system to visually indicate to people when it is and is not possible to keep track of time. So there's, you know, there's a, a priest, a Kohen somewhere in the temple who's actually consulting a sundial. But for everybody else, they get this extremely uh, crude, extremely rudimentary system. And that's the way they keep track of time because that is really what it ends up being reasonable to expect from people um, in this era. Um, there are so many examples that you can that you can bring. I want to give you one more that's not about figuring out how long, uh, I'm sorry, that's not about figuring out what hour of the day it is, but figuring out how long it is between two moments, you know, how much time has passed between two moments. Because keeping track of time isn't just about knowing what hour of the day it is. It's also about knowing whether, you know, 10 minutes have passed, 15 minutes have passed, half an hour has passed. And one of the things that happens is if you don't have a clock, is that your sense of time, short spans of time especially, really gets kind of fuzzy. And you stop thinking in terms of, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and instead start thinking in terms of actions actions that everyone knows, that everyone understands exactly how long those things take, right? Um, so these, the, the example I want to bring you, Rabbi Abahu said, the Rabbi Shimon Ban Laki said, according to the sages, leavening, that is how long it takes for a mixture of flour and water to go from being just a mixture of flour and water to being chametz, leavening occurs in the time that it takes a person to walk the distance from Migdal Nunia to Tiberias, which is a meal, 2,000 cubits. Right? He doesn't bother uh, trying to give you um, a, uh, a number of minutes or a fraction of an hour, because really this is the way that you can help people think about it the best. There's examples of this all over rabbinic literature. Rabbis talk about how long it takes to warm a kettle, or they'll talk about how long it takes to eat a piece of bread, or how long it takes to roast a small fish, or how long it takes to say a few words. All these are things that everyone knows about because everyone eats and everyone walks, everyone is engaged in these activities. And that's a better way of communicating short periods of time when you don't have stopwatches and you don't even have reliable water clocks. Um, the way that the rabbis think about 
timekeeping isn't just affected by the technology though. It's also affected by two other things. One is that in this moment in time, the rabbis are not really mathematicians. They're not engaged in astronomy. They're not thinking in, they're, they're not engaged in that kind of scientific literature. And so really their experience of time, the way that they think about time is really all about what normal average people need to know. They're not thinking about anything beyond that. But there's a second way in which the rabbis' notions of time are affected by their surroundings. And specifically, it's affected by latitude. So I want to show you a map. This is a map of the Jewish world, let's say from the beginning of rabbinic literature, so around the third century CE, let's say until the, until the Middle Ages. Every dot represents a kind of um, uh, uh, a major center of rabbinic learning. Now, one thing I want you to note in this map is that the rabbis who write the Mishnah and the Talmud, that is the rabbis who write the first, the core books of rabbinic literature, the books that everyone then later goes back to, all live in the bottom right of this map. They all live in you know, Alexandria, Cairo, Jerusalem, Baghdad, Surah, Kumpadita. They're all pretty low down. These are moderate latitudes. And what I've given you here um, with these, these, uh, these numbers of hours and minutes, this is, ooh, I'm sorry. This is the, um, the difference between the longest day of the year and the shortest day of the year at each location. And as you can tell, the farther north you go, the more it increases. It increases pretty significantly, it increases pretty fast, right? So if you were a rabbi living in Jerusalem, the difference between the longest day of the year and the shortest day of the year is probably around four hours. It's not a huge amount of time. But if you're living in a place like London, it is <laughs> much more than that. And that changes your notion of what a day is, right? That means that a day is not this thing which is more or less standard. It means that a day actually fluctuates quite significantly. And the way that you think about hours and tracking time changes as a result of that. The truth of the matter is, the rabbis living in the bottom right of this map are not really thinking about what it means to live in London. It's possible they don't even think it's possible to live in London. You know, there are Islamic sources written a little bit after this that speculate about, you know, um, where the best place on earth to live is. What's the best, like, uh, you know, line of latitude to live at? And some, there are some um, Islamic geographers who say that living in a place like London is actually, like, literally impossible. Like, London cannot support human life because it's too far north. Um, so if you're in a situation like that, you're not going to develop uh, your religion in a way that allows for the possibility of people living in those places. And that's why you end up having this funny situation where rabbis, once they leave Israel and they leave Iraq and they start moving into Europe, they start moving into places like northern France and Germany, which are pretty far north in this map, they start asking questions like, wait a minute, what do I do when I want to pray Marv, when I want to pray the evening service, but it's just so late, I don't want to go out that late, right? They start thinking about these questions, questions that the rabbis never had to deal with before. I'll say like just one aside about this, which is that, um, you know, these days it's very fashionable to think about, you know, with, with uh, you know, people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, you know, traveling into outer space and talking about colonies on Mars, like people talk about, well, what would it mean for Jews to go to the to outer space? What would it mean for Jews to be circling the planet? You would, does that mean you have to put on tefillin every 90 minutes? Does that mean you have to, you know, celebrate Shabbat every few hours? And the truth of the matter is, you know, Jews have had that kind of experience before. If we can go from a place where, you know, the rabbis of the Talmud literally aren't thinking about developing Jewish law for the entire world, I'm sure we can go from, from developing law for the entire world to developing law into space as well. Um, 
because th there's really a sense here that there's a moment in which Judaism becomes a global religion and Jewish law becomes a law that can apply to all places on the globe, but it doesn't happen immediately because again, the rabbis are experiencing Jewish law and experiencing um, you know, day and night from these pretty moderate latitudes. Um, so this is the story basically up until the end of the Talmud. This is the story up until like, let's say, you know, year 600, something like that. From there, we kind of split into two stories. The two stories are one one plays out um, in the Islamic world, one plays out in the in the in the um, in the Christian world. So you know, broadly speaking, in North Africa and uh, uh, in the Middle East, and then a separate story that plays out in uh, in Europe. And these stories play out very differently. On the one hand, in Islamic countries, you have a situation where people are um, becoming more and more aware of scientific knowledge. They're getting all that information. They're learning about the ways to keep track of the hours. They're learning about scientific instruments, but they're still living in moderate latitudes. So they're like, okay, we have this information, but who cares? Like, it's not very interesting. It's kind of of only theoretical use. And on the other hand, in Christian countries, you have Jews who are more or less not engaging with the Islamic literature that's around them. Um, I'm sorry, the, the pages keep moving on me. Uh, they're not engaging with the Islamic literature that's around them, with the Christian literature that's around them, but they're living so far north that they kind of have to grapple with it anyways. And that's the divide that develops. Now, in that situation, you start to have some attempts to, to think through, well, how do I deal with um, keeping track of time in less than ideal situations? And one, uh, one technique that develops is to use your hand as a sundial. There's a rabbi in the Middle Ages um, in Christian, uh, you know, writing in Germany, basically says, you know, if it's the uh, Passover even, you want to figure out how late you can eat, basically like take a stick, put it in your hand, turn a certain way and turn your own hand into a sundial. And he suggests that that's a way of keeping track of keeping track of time. But obviously it doesn't work very well. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's like an interesting idea, but it doesn't really get widely adopted. The real shift happens around the year 1400. Because around the year 1400, you start having mechanical clocks for the first time ever become widely available. Clocks that are now ringing throughout Christian cities in Europe that are telling everybody regularly, like this, you know, it is now the first hour of the day, the second hour of the day, the third hour of the day. And this radically changes the way that people keep track of time. The very, very first time we hear about this in Jewish sources is this source here says, during the wedding of the sage Rabbi Yonah, the son of our teacher of Shalom, which was on the Thursday before the fast of the 17th of Tammuz, the Gabbai called on the community to come to the synagogue for prayer at the ringing of four hours afternoon. Now, one interesting thing to note here is that in this community, the place where he's writing, they actually don't have a mechanical clock yet. What they have instead is a community of people who are so jealous of the community ne next door that does have a mechanical clock that they are pretending to have a mechanical clock. They're literally getting someone to go up every hour to pretend that they have a mechanical clock and ring the bell manually until a mechanical clock can get installed. Because people are excited about this. People are excited about the prospect of finally being able to keep track of time and announce it to their entire communities on a regular basis. But the other thing that you should see, you should note here is that the source of that sound is not neutral. A lot of times those first clocks are coming from Christian churches. Um, or, or they're coming from you know, they're coming from Christian bell towers, and because of that, even though Jews very quickly start to adopt and adapt to this world in which you have um, which you have clocks, that notion that clocks are kind of a, they're a little bit Christian never really uh, never really goes away. 
And you see this in a lot of different places. One place you see it, for example, is that for a long time, when Jews paint portraits of themselves, they don't put clocks in the portraits. Christians do it all the time. Putting a clock in the back of your portrait is a sign of wealth. It's a sign of sophistication. It means you're a man of science or a woman of science. But Jews don't do it because it is a Christian symbol. It's also the reason why, for most of Jewish history, if you look at the outside of basically any synagogue, it's very, very unlikely that you will see a clock on the outside of that synagogue. Every once in a while you do, and the exceptions are interesting, but most of the time you don't. Actually, I want to show you a, a few exceptions here. There's, there's three interesting exceptions. One is um, on the left here. This is the clock um, um, on the shul in Prague which is interesting, not just because it has Hebrew letters, but because it goes the other way. It goes counterclockwise. There's, I think there's really no other clock like this. It's, it's kind of unique. The second is a clock um, in a shul uh, that was destroyed by the Nazis in World War II. Uh, this is a shul that was in Rotterdam. And if you look really carefully, I, I tried to make it as big as possible, you'll notice that the clock face looks a little bit weird, right? It doesn't say, you know, I, I it doesn't have X's they replace the X's with P's. Now, why P, I don't know, but I do know why it's not an X. It's not an X because X for them is Christian. It's a Christian symbol. And so they literally change the X into a P because they're like, yes, we want a clock, but we don't want it to be a Christian clock. So we're gonna change it a little, just a little bit. The most interesting clock though, is the one on the right. And this is a clock in Mumbai, because it turns out that the only place in the world where you can consistently find Jewish, uh, where you can consistently find synagogues that have clocks on their faces is in India. And the reason for that is that what it means to have a clock on your synagogue in India is very different from what it means to have a clock on your synagogue in Europe. In Europe, Jews are the minority, they're frequently persecuted, and there's many reasons why there's a sense that, no, clocks are a thing that Christians do, they're not a things that we do. But in India, that context, that context of anti-Semitism and persecution it just kind of isn't there. Instead, what you have is a number of wealthy Jewish families, the Sassoon family especially, who are kind of patrons in many major Indian cities. And so they see the development of their synagogues as basically public architecture. And so they put these faces on their clocks in ways that no one else would feel comfortable doing it. So you have this funny story where like, you know, India, I, I think people do not always um, take seriously like how much in India is the center of Jewish life, but it's the center of Jewish life where this particular phenomenon is allowed to flourish in ways that it can't really flourish anywhere else. Eventually, you start seeing these uh, this interesting clocks get to other places too. You start seeing more synagogues with clocks in their faces. You even start seeing rabbis um, with clocks in the background of their portraits. On the right is the Vilna Gon, who is a, a famous uh, Talmudic scholar from the 18th century, um, I'm sorry, from, yes, from the 18th century. Um, every portrait of him basically has a clock in the background. You also start seeing it in portraits of wealthy Jews. Samuel Oppenheimer uh, is a wealthy financier. You can kind of see, if you look carefully, um, just above his, his uh, the hand on the, on the left side of the portrait, there's a clock in the background too. Again, kind of indicating a level of wealth that Jews didn't have previously. So, it's not just about what the clock does for you. It's about what the clock signifies. Um, and it's really, really hard to differentiate between the two. But the other thing that happens, obviously, is that when you have better clocks and you have clocks that, you know, first, first they're everywhere, they're big, and they're just for the public. And then they get smaller, so you can have a pocket watch. And then the pocket watches become less expensive, so everyone can have them. And then they start having not just our hands, 
but minute hands and second hands. So slowly, 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 it becomes easier and easier to keep track of time with more and more precision. One thing that happens because of that process is that Jewish law changes too. I'll give you one big example of this. So there's a rule in Jewish law about not mixing meat and milk, obviously. Um, and if you have meat, you're supposed to wait a certain amount of time until you have milk, until you have dairy products. Now, how long are you supposed to wait? In the Talmud, it doesn't really say. It basically says, you know, if you have meat in one meal, don't have milk until the next meal. It doesn't say how long that is. It just says, wait until the next meal. And that's basically the line that, you know, that, that is used consistently for around 1,500 years from the Talmud. But eventually, it gets to a point where you can actually tell people a specific number of hours that they're allowed to wait, and they can follow that. So then you start having opinions about, well, you're supposed to wait six hours. You're supposed to wait three hours. You're supposed to wait one hour, things like that. And people translate something that was originally about the distance between meals to something that is about a specific amount of time. But there, I want you to hear that Greek source in your head from before, right? Because it may actually be that those amounts of time don't correspond with the way that you're living your life. And, and this is another example of the use of clocks actually disconnecting people from their own reality, disconnecting people from their own bodies, from their own sense of hunger, from all that, from all those things, uh, which time does and which we, which we kind of live with, but is, is a natural consequence of it. You also see this around like when Shabbat is supposed to start. If you look in, you know, in many synagogues, I'm sorry. Um, sorry, I'll pull this up again. If you look in many synagogues, you will see uh, something that looks like this uh, on the left. You'll see uh, something that tells you, you know, when it's time for morning prayers, evening prayers, um, night prayers. That so this is like a clock face that tells you that tells you that. And on the right, I've given you the kind of modern version of that. This is from the website mysmanim.com, which tells you in almost excruciating detail exactly how long. Uh, you are, you know, exactly what, not just what minute, but when, what second dawn starts, the earliest, earliest possible time you can put on your towels and fill in, it gives you that the precise second. And that's kind of what happens as a kind of natural algorithm of having this precise technology, because people are no longer thinking in terms of, well, is it is it early enough that I can tell the difference between blue and white? Is it light enough for that? That's like long gone. It's instead replaced with just numbers. Um, and that's kind of the world we live in today. So, you know, it's, 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 this world has, has become so ubiquitous that in some ways it's hard to imagine uh, things being any other way at this point. It's hard to imagine being in a world in which we are ignoring our clocks and just paying attention to what the surroundings look like around us. Instead, it sometimes feels like the surroundings follow the clocks. Um, but it's important to keep that, um, you know, that, that transition in mind because, of course, Jewish law was developed with people in mind, was developed with uh, with natural rhythms uh, in mind. And I think one thing that happens um, because of the development of all this new timekeeping technology is that sometimes Jewish law can end up feeling more alien or more artificial than it was originally intended to be because you have rules that were supposed to feel natural ending up looking artificial because you have you know, the time between meals being translated into like, you must wait exactly six hours from you know, this until that. Um, so that's a bit of a shame. And I'll say that, you know, one thing that, that I felt in, in researching the sources is the kind of uh, relief that, um, that some aspects of Jewish law, which previously had felt kind of cold to me, ended up feeling like they made a lot more sense because it was actually about uh, rhythms of nature, which I myself had ignored because I'm, you know, I wasn't paying attention to, you know, when dawn is or when midday is either. 
So I think by kind of getting back to the sources, by recognizing the, the, the pretty significant technological shifts that we have gone through, you really get this sense of, of the change and you get a sense of what we might what we might go back to and what we have to cherish. So let me stop there and um, ask if there are any questions. I, I have a few questions if, uh, if others do not, but if anyone, does anyone have a question that they'd like to ask so far? Uh, you can um, either put it in the chat box or, or you can ask directly. Um, first of all, this is absolutely fascinating. I, I, first of all, I wanted to ask a, a big broad question, which is as we've become more sophisticated with telling time, how has it actually affected the average person's life per se? Not just from a halachic perspective, but just in general, our, our spiritual life, our emotional life. What, what would be your opinion on that? I mean, one place where I think you see this come across really strongly, and there's a book written about this recently, is what does it mean to wait for somebody? What counts as waiting? Um, you know, I know that uh, uh, during the pandemic, my notion of when a meeting is supposed to start has become a lot more rigid because everyone's sitting in front of their computers anyways. So it's like you show up in the first minute, like, you know, they give you 90 seconds and like, then you're, you're late after that, which isn't the case before COVID, right? Like before COVID, this is like, oh, there's travel time, there's other things to consider. Um, and certainly before you have clocks like this, what it means to wait is totally different, right? Because the expectation that two people living in different parts of a city can synchronize when they're supposed to show up in the same place is actually a kind of complicated problem. And so you have, you have situations where people wait around a lot more because they, they can't tell if a person is not gonna show up or showing up late or whatever it happens to be. Um, so it's really kind of pervasive. It really shows up in all different parts of the way we experience, uh, experience time. Um, and it also shows up in the way that we're willing to um, apportion our day, right? If the way that, if you, know, if, if you are trying to plan something with somebody else, and you don't know where they're gonna show up, you're probably gonna plan your day a little bit more loosely. You're probably going to have a little more downtime, a little more time to think, maybe a little more time to get bored. If you can actually plan down to the minute exactly when everything is supposed to happen, you're more likely to fill up your day with all kinds of tasks because you can. Um, and so this is a situation where I think having access to that technology kind of pushes us to this level of efficiency that I think sometimes can, can feel counterproductive or um, can feel exhausting. Um, Robert? How about the uh, how about the time period for the month? As I understood, that was very important and probably very accurately kept. Yeah, so it's funny. There's like a really big gap between what it means to keep track of time um, within the space of a day, subdividing a day, and then basically all of the units of time. All of the units of time are really political. Um, there's often like there, there are often some pretty bitter debates uh, between rabbis between Jewish communities about exactly what day the new month is supposed to fall, which then has implications for like when Rosh Hashanah is, when Yom Kippur is, when Pesach is. Um, it is a way of kind of signaling control by kind of saying, you know, you're going to follow my calendar and not somebody else's calendar. Um, you know, the, the, the concept of the month, because it's connected to the moon, is itself, you know, a, is a pretty old concept. But figuring out how months fit into a year, when you should have a leap year, when you should add an extra month, that ends up being very complicated and very contentious, basically up until the point where 
um, math takes over and it ends up becoming a mathematical problem where you're not relying on human beings to be involved in the process anymore. But that takes really, really a very long time. Uh, Arnold at NASA. Yes, well, going back into the Bible times, how did people count the years? I mean, that's a, that's a time. So, um, you know, if somebody lives 120 years or 700 years, how do they, I mean, that's time. How do they count it? Well, the nice thing is it's a little bit easier to keep track of longer periods of time because you have, um, you have like a, a physical phenomenon that you can count, right? You can count exactly how many times the sun comes up. You can also track exactly the sun's position in the sky. And you can say like, oh, I, it looks like every 365, every 366 days, the sun is back to the, where, the position it was in the sky. So those are kind of things which basically every, every culture, every civilization on earth figures out on their own. Um, but when it gets to smaller periods of time, like, you know, is the sun like this high in the sky? Is it that high in the sky? That's a lot trickier. And there's a lot of different ways of dealing with that problem. Early has a question. Thank you. I really enjoyed your talk. Uh, the uh, um, Rabbi Enfield mentioned everyday life and how the time has affected it. Uh, in your uh, research, have, have you come across much in the way of how different concepts of time over the centuries changed work life and professional life as, as we're able to be more precise about time? Yeah, it has a huge impact. I mean, I think it especially has an impact um, in, uh, around the Industrial Revolution. Um, you know, in the late 19th century, you start having entire industries that are all about making sure that every single worker is performing every single task exactly as fast as they possibly can. And timing, like, okay, exactly how long does it take to, like, to move this widget from this place to that place? How many seconds? Is there a fast way to do it? So um, efficiency is one big effect. And obviously that can be taken to, you know, terrible situations. I think like, you know, they're, you know, thinking about the way that the reports of, of Amazon workers, like not being able to take bathroom breaks because those have basically been calculated out of the time they have available for their workday. Um, so it can be taken to, to pretty bad places. Um, but you definitely see it already starting like in the Middle Ages, in places like France, in places like Germany, where uh, um, the notion of time, which had previously been really connected strongly to the church, and to when, um, you know, when monks are saying their prayers um, is now something which is kind of for everybody. Um, although I think that even though it's technically for everybody, it still kind of feels Christian to Jews. Um, I just want to go to, to, to Mark's question. Yeah, the Talmud discussion, there's, there's a Talmudic passage which says that God divides God's day into four parts, right? Uh, God spends three hours studying Torah, three hours playing with the Leviathan, and then I think God gets angry and then kind of God stopping being angry for the second half of the day. One important thing to note there is that God basically divides up uh, the day the way the Romans did, which is into four quarters. Um, you know, not thinking about every single hour, but basically early afternoon, sorry, early morning, late morning, early afternoon, late afternoon. Uh, it's basically doing something very, very similar there. Imagining that God's day looks kind of like a human being's day. Uh, Phyllis. Yes. Um, can you comment on why some holidays are observed for two days so that everyone, uh, all the Jews in the world could uh, 
have some sense of beginning together and why some are not. And if, if any other occasions other than uh, the holidays have this idea of doubling time so that everyone universally can participate? Yeah, those are two great questions. So for the first question, it's kind of an artifact of a, a much earlier way of transmitting information. You know, so the calendar is decided centrally. It originally is decided by an actual, you know, set of human beings who are making the decisions and then telling everybody that the new month has begun and telling that everyone, telling everyone that the new month has started takes a little bit of time. You know, if you're, if you're trying to get that message from Jerusalem to somewhere in Babylonia, that might not be so simple. So because of that, the rabbis kind of build in a failsafe. They say, well, keep two days of the holiday instead of one. And that way, you'll make sure that you are definitely observing the right day. That's where it starts. But once that phenomenon starts, it kind of it kind of never leaves. It kind of never goes away. Um, and so you end up in situations where, you know, forever and after, um, you have communities in the diaspora continuing to observe two days, even though, you know, everyone knows exactly when the day is supposed to, you know, when, when, you know, when the holiday is supposed to start. Um, can you ask me your second question again? Um, are there other occasions where, uh, other than holidays, where two days are observed uh, because uh, you want everyone to celebrate the holiday, like like a holiday like uh, uh, Yom, uh, Yom Hatzmaut or, or a holiday like that? Yeah, so I don't think so. But, um, but one thing that you do have is because Jews so early on are starting to think about um, what it means to, you know, the ways that, uh, that the observance of time is affected by where different people are living on the planet. The fact that some Jews are living in Israel and some Jews are living in Europe um, is that you start, having, um, you start having Jews think about what it means for say something like the Sabbath to not be observed by all Jews at the same time because not everyone has the same sunset and sunrise. And actually like the Sabbath is something that moves across the globe. Um, this actually results in a situation where the very, very, very first evidence we have of an international dateline, the very first people to think about the concept of an international dateline are Jews. Um, in the Kuzari, which is this philosophical book from the 12th century, you have someone kind of contemplating like, well, what, what would it mean? Like, you know, what would it mean for the Sabbath to start in China and then kind of like move its way across the globe to Israel and then beyond? Um, he's starting to think about that because he's imagining um, that, you know, uh, a Jew is kind of observing globally and recognizes that actually you can't have everyone observing at the same time. Um, is there, are there any other questions? I, I, I want to ask a question and then believe it or not, time is flying. Oh, um, Eleanor, did you want to ask a question? Was that a hand? I, I don't want it. I don't want to take time, take time from away from your question. Rabbi. Oh, no, please ask your question, please. Okay. Um, thank you so much. Very interesting. I, I, you said so much. I, I don't think you touched on this, but forgive me if you did. I've always been interested in the fact that some markers of time are sort of set by geographical realities and some are more human constructions so that the the year, the month, the day are set by the workings of the world. 
whereas the minute and the hour and on a larger scale, decades and centuries are human constructions. Comments? Yeah, and, and one, uh, what other ones that um, I don't think you said is the week is very much a human construction. Uh, and there's actually, if you're looking for a really great read, um, there's a book that came out, I think just a week or two ago called The Week um, by, uh, um, his last name is Hankin, I think his first name is, I wanna say David, um, uh, literally about this, this question of like how you end up in a situation where these like totally artificial conventions become, uh, become universal. The shorter answer is that, um, once the conventions start, it's really, really hard to change them, right? So that's the reason why, you know, the Egyptians come up with 12 hours. We don't exactly know why they end up with 12, but, you know, 3,000 years later, we are still doing 12 hours. And the Babylonians are, you know, they really like dividing things into 60s. So we end up with, you know, dividing the, uh, the hour into 60 minutes and the minute into 60 seconds. There was really no rhyme or reason, but attempts, you know, uh, France at some point famously tried to change everything to 10s, like, you know, uh, 10 you know, uh, having 10 day weeks and having, you know, 10 hours uh, instead of 12 hours. And it kind of doesn't work. People learn to expect uh, the conventions that they know about. Thanks. You know, I want to, um, first, so I want to say thank you for your presentation. But before, I already thanked Bob. Bob is going to actually give us a, a, a couple thank yous. And then I'm going to just make uh, one announcement about our next presentation. Then we'll finish with one last question. So, or maybe two. Bob, can you can you uh, present us with some thank yous for this evening? But you'll have to unmute yourself, Bob. Good. Okay, thank you, Rabbi. I'd like to express thanks very much to Dr. Kalman for this most interesting, wide-ranging, so well-spoken, outstanding presentation. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Dr. Kalman. I would like to thank Congregation Beth Israel very much for presenting this very meaningful series and for so kindly dedicating it in honor of the memory of my brothers Ralph and Ron. Each of many members of the Beth Israel staff, I would like to express an appreciation to, to Rabbi Stein. As Rabbi Infield mentioned at the start, it was Rabbi Stein's very inspiring sermon a few years ago that was the motivation for, uh, for uh, mounting this series. And I uh, would like to thank Rabbi Stein, would like to thank Rabbi Infield, who so professionally organized and arranged for the speakers and the topics, um, unifying each session as an essential part of the whole series. To Executive Director Esther Moses Wood for her excellent overall seeing of the entire process of bringing this series to us to Administrative Assistant Shira Wilf for her outstanding graphic and verbal creativity, producing outstanding publicity and promotion for the series, and to Adult Education and Programming Director Diane Friedman for her flawless organization and operation of the Zoom broadcasts.
I remember my two brothers, Ralph and Ron, with the utmost of love. I very thankfully have many precious and vivid memories of them, spanning the decades, recalling specifically how they always tried their very best to help those in need, be it family, friends, or community. Their desire to do what they could to make each day a more healthier or happier day than the one previously was constant and enthusiastically carried out quietly and sincerely. I'd like to thank everyone on the broadcast tonight for taking part, for being here, and to also express appreciation to those who would have liked to have been here but weren't able to do so. And finally, like to express a very healthy, happy New Year 2022 wishes to everyone. May it be a truly wonderful year, a year filled to the brim with a full realization of all of your hopes and your dreams. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. And, and of course, you know, Bob, thank you so much for making this all a, a reality. We greatly appreciate it. And being such a generous sponsor of this entire series. Thank you, Bob. You're very welcome, Rabbi. Thank um, you. Thank you and, very much. And, uh, and again, just to go back to you, David Speak, um, I want to just finish with maybe maybe just one or two questions. And uh, first question is, is I, I get that the church really brought the clock universally to us, but why? If Judaism is a religion of halakha that is really locked in, on time-bound mitzvot. And the church really isn't a, a, a church of halakha. Why, why would the church put a clock on every building? What's the purpose? Yeah, so um, I wanna just be clear about it. I think the, the move to mechanical clocks is actually a story of the church becoming less involved in timekeeping. Before you have uh, churches that, you, before you have situations where it's mostly just monks who care about time, like, you know, they're praying every hour and so they need to keep track of time. And after that, it's everybody using the time. It's, you know, people in the marketplace, it becomes secularized. But my point is that even though, it, you know, there, there's some things that like, you know, feel secular if you're in the majority, but don't feel secular at all if you're in the minority. I think like, you know, certainly some people feel uh, like this around Christmas where, you know, um, if you're a Christian, you know, Christian symbolism can feel secular. And if you're Jewish, it can feel like actually quite Christian. Um, I think you have something similar going on with clocks where Christians perceive it as being this like secularized thing, but Jews perceive it as actually pretty strongly attached to, to churches, you know, for good reason. Sometimes you have, you know, church bells that are still ringing out the sounds. Um, there's also, you know, uh, there's there 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 are long regulations around Jews not making too much noise, like literally not making too much noise in the places that they live. You know, if you're thinking about the ways that Jews like to keep track of when their prayer services start in Europe, a lot of times they'll employ someone called a, a shul clopper, whose like job is literally to go from house to house to house to like knock on people's windows and tell them they should wake up because it's time for morning prayers. And the reason they have that is because you know, if they were to shout out from the rooftops, someone would get mad at them and it might cause, might cause violence. So Jews are really acutely aware that the, 
the kind of the, the Christianity never really quite goes away from timekeeping, at least public timekeeping, until you know maybe 200, 300 years ago. Um, do you maybe since secular New Year's is coming up, do you want to finish by talking a little bit about about timekeeping in terms of Jewish calendar, secular calendars, Gregorian calendar? How does that play a role in Jewish life, and how does that play a role in our in our lives in general? I'll tell you one thing from uh, uh, this is not my is not my research from a professor named Alexis McCrossin, um, um, who it did work on why we have countdowns. Why do we count down to New Year's? First of all, think about the, the possibility of counting down to New Year's is like a miracle, right? Like the fact that you can know, that everyone can know exactly at the same moment when it is midnight, when you are in the new year, is all because we have not just you know precise timekeeping devices, but precise timekeeping devices that are perfectly synchronized. That we can all do it at the same moment. That's a, uh, that's a big deal. You know, if you think about the way New Year's is celebrated like 100, 200 years, 200 years ago, you never celebrate the moment up until New Year's. You only celebrate after New Year's because after New Year's, you hear the bells ringing, you hear people celebrating, like you go out to the streets. It's all about like the moments after midnight. But today, because of our timekeeping devices, we have, um, we, you know, we have uh, uh, celebrations that lead up until midnight. We have that countdown as well. Thank you for tuning in.